You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, January 14th, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, where and how you are likely to catch COVID-19 from the Denver Post. Plus, most people will get COVID, says the FDA chief from the Washington Post. And at-home COVID tests are inaccessible to blind people from the New York Times. Here's our first report. Here's where and how you are most likely to catch COVID, according to a new CU Boulder study. The key to preventing transmission is to understand how airborne particles behave. By Shelley Miller, Trish Greenhall, Jose Luis Jimenez, and Ji Peng from the University of Colorado Boulder and published in the Denver Post. Two years into the pandemic, most of us are fed up. COVID case rates are higher than they've ever been, and hospitalization rates are once again rising rapidly in many countries. Against this bleak picture, we yearn to get back to normal. We'd like to meet friends in a pub or have them over for dinner. We'd like our struggling business to thrive like it did before the pandemic. We'd like our children to return to their once familiar routine of in-person schooling and after-school activities. We'd like to ride on a bus, sing in a choir, get back to the gym, or dance in a nightclub without fear of catching COVID. Which of these activities is safe, and how safe exactly? These were the questions we sought to answer in our latest research. SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, spreads mainly by airborne transmission. So the key to preventing transmission is to understand how airborne particles behave, which requires knowledge from physics and chemistry. Air is a fluid made up of invisible, rapidly and randomly moving molecules, so airborne particles disperse over time indoors, such as in a room or on a bus. An infected person may exhale particles containing the virus, and the closer you are to them, the more likely you are to inhale some virus-containing particles. But the longer the period you both spend in the room, the more spread out the virus will become. If you are outdoors, the space is almost infinite, so the virus doesn't build up in the same way. However, someone can still transmit the virus if you're close to them. Viral particles can be emitted every time an infected person breathes, but especially if their breathing is deep, such as when exercising, or involves vocalization, such as speaking or singing. While wearing a well-fitting mask reduces transmission because the mask blocks the release of virus, the unmasked infected person who sits quietly in a corner is much less likely to infect you than one who approaches you and starts a heated argument. All variants of SARS-CoV-2 are equally airborne, but the chance of catching COVID depends on the transmissibility or contagiousness of the variant Delta was more contagious than previous variants, but Omicron is more contagious still, and on how many people are currently infected, the prevalence of the disease. As of January 8th, the CDC estimates that 98% of COVID infections in the U.S. are from the Omicron variant. While Omicron appears more transmissible, 
it also seems to produce less severe illness, especially in vaccinated people. Likelihood of becoming infected. In our study, we have quantified how the different influences on transmission change your risk of getting sick. Viral factors, transmissibility and prevalence, people factors, masked or unmasked, exercising or sitting, vocalizing or quiet, and air quality factors, indoors or outdoors, big room, small room, crowded, uncrowded, ventilated, unventilated. We did this by carefully studying empirical data on how many people became infected in super spreader events where key parameters, such as the room size, room occupancy, and ventilation levels were well documented, and by representing how transmission happens with a mathematical model. A surefire way to catch COVID is to do a combination of things. For example, gather together with lots of people in an enclosed space with poor air quality, such as an underventilated gym, nightclub, or school classroom. Do something strenuous or rowdy, such as exercising, singing, or shouting. Leave off your masks. Stay there for a long time. To avoid catching COVID, try these practices. If you must meet other people, do so outdoors or in a space that's well ventilated or meet in a space where the ventilation is good and air quality is known. Keep the number of people to a minimum. Spend the minimum possible amount of time together. Don't shout, sing, or do heavy exercise. Wear high-quality, well-fitting masks from the time you enter the building to the time you leave. Bear in mind that the actual risk will depend on the specific parameters, such as exactly how many people are in a room of what size. Up next, Coronavirus Update by Derek Hawkins from The Washington Post. This week, Food and Drug Administration head Janet Woodcock told a Senate panel that most people are going to get COVID. It might be hard to process, she said, but it's important to acknowledge as the country tries to chart a new path forward. What we need to do is make sure the hospitals can still function, transportation, you know, other essential services are not disrupted while this happens, she said. I think after that will be a good time to reassess how we're approaching this pandemic, she said. It's still not clear whether the current vaccines need to be tweaked for Omicron but Pfizer is already working on an Omicron-specific vaccine. A Pfizer spokesman told the Washington Post that the company hopes to have 50 to 100 million doses of the Omicron-specific vaccine available by late March or early April. If it turns out the shots aren't necessary, Pfizer's chief executive says they'll eat the costs. Up next... At-home coronavirus tests are inaccessible to blind people. With visual cues and complex steps, at-home coronavirus tests are often inaccessible to blind people. But some low- and high-tech workarounds could help. By Amanda Morris from the New York Times. Christy Smith has never been tested for the coronavirus. As a blind person, she can't drive to testing sites near her home in St. Louis, and they are too far away for her to walk. Alternative options, public transportation, rideshare apps, or having a friend drive her to a test site would put others at risk for exposure. The rapid tests that millions of other people are taking at home 
which require precisely plunking liquid drops into tiny spaces and have no braille guides, are also inaccessible to Ms. Smith. Many people who are blind or have limited vision are not being tested as often as they would like, and some are staying isolated because testing is too difficult. Not all of us have access to somebody sighted to help with things on a regular basis, Ms. Smith said. It's kind of a mix of frustration and just feeling a bit helpless, she added. When Ms. Smith's husband, who is also blind, fell sick with a sore throat, stuffy nose, and fever last fall, both of them isolated at home until his symptoms disappeared. They never found out what pathogen caused the infection. Some blind people manage to take at-home tests with the help of video call apps like Be My Eyes and ERA. These services pair blind individuals with a sighted person who can describe their surroundings and guide them through a test step-by-step. But these interactions are difficult, and not everyone who is blind owns a smartphone or is able to use a smartphone. What's more, relying on others can erode a blind person's privacy and independence. It's your personal health information, said Martin Wingfield, the head of brand at the Royal National Institute of Blind People in Britain. You should be the first to know. Mr. Wingfield is part of a team that created a home pregnancy test that delivers results through raised bumps that can be felt by a blind person. The prototype uses a battery-operated motor that transforms chemical changes on a strip into raised bumps. Known as a lateral flow assay, it's the same type of test used to detect the coronavirus at home. So, in theory, the Institute's prototype could be modified to make at-home coronavirus tests more accessible, Mr. Wingfield said. The cost of so-called tactile tests would be roughly $20 to $30, he said, though manufacturers might be able to make them for less. Another way to deliver test results could be through a change in smell or temperature, according to Hobie Wedler, a blind chemist and entrepreneur. Currently, most at-home tests use substances that change color after a chemical reaction. But there are all sorts of things we can have these indicators do other than change color, he said. Although a change in scent might not be useful for COVID patients, who often lose their sense of smell, Dr. Wedler argued that other types of at-home tests could be made more accessible through concepts like this. Coronavirus tests can be tricky to carry out. Many require the user to dispense liquid into small holes and not touch the testing strip. Blind people do most of what they do using touch in some way, said Kim Charlson, the immediate past president of the American Council of the Blind. Even guiding the swab into the tube without touching something or touching it can be very difficult, even for people who have been blind for a long time and are pretty confident, she said. Ms. Charlson has worked with health agencies to create more walk-up test site options, and she is now asking manufacturers to make more accessible home tests. One such company is Abbott, which makes the popular Binex Now test. When developing new tests, said Ali Morizzi, an Abbott spokeswoman, the company will continue to design with access and affordability in mind, but she declined to give specifics about whether Abbott has plans for a redesign. Some fixes could be as simple as changing the test instructions, according to Mark Riccobono, the president of the National Federation of the Blind. 
When he and his wife, who were both blind, took at-home coronavirus tests in November, Mr. Riccobono had to ask his oldest child to read the instructions aloud. Manufacturers could instead provide a phone number in Braille that people could call for instructions, Mr. Riccobono said. He also suggested that some sort of touchable template be placed over a test card or cartridge to orient blind people as to where they should drop liquid or put their nasal swab. It's not really rocket science. There's some easy things we can do, he said. In Britain, accessible instructions are already available, according to Michael Wordingham, a policy officer with the Royal National Institute of Blind People. These instructions, which can be found in Braille, large text, or audio formats, explain how to navigate the process through touch. If you think about the swab, it would say, before you take it out of the packet, feel along for the thicker end and make sure you open it out of the other end so you don't contaminate the swab, Mr. Wordingham explained. Still, even the simplest solutions will take time to enact. Without good testing options now, some blind people, like Karen Johnson, age 37, of Fort Wayne, Indiana, are largely staying home to be safe. Ms. Johnson hasn't seen some family members since the beginning of the pandemic because she said it's too hard for her to figure out how to be tested before and after a flight. When she does go into public spaces, Ms. Johnson is vigilant about wearing a mask and sanitizing her hands because she doesn't know who else is wearing a mask or whether everyone is staying six feet away. Ideally, she said, she would love to have a free public service where workers come to people's homes to collect samples and run tests. Currently, some private companies like Scarlet and Paradox offer this service, but they cost more than regular at-home tests and are only available in certain areas, mostly in large cities such as New York, Miami, and Los Angeles. If these services were at least cheaper and more widespread, Ms. Johnson might finally be able to get tested. I would love to at least have that peace of mind to be able to say, I didn't catch it and I didn't give it to you, Ms. Johnson said. Up next, what we know about Omicron symptoms so far, by Jamie Ducharme from Time Magazine. The list of symptoms associated with COVID-19 is long, spanning everything from lost taste and smell to skin conditions. But since the pandemic began, health authorities have emphasized a few hallmark signs, namely coughing and fever. As people the world over are finding, though, cases related to the Omicron variant don't always produce those symptoms. During the Omicron wave, many people are reporting symptoms more in line with a common cold, with some puzzling additions like lower back pain. There's still a lot to be learned, but here's what we know so far about the symptoms of Omicron. What are the most common Omicron symptoms? Reports have varied, but overall, this Omicron variant is acting more like a normal coronavirus, such as those that cause the common cold, says Dr. Stephanie Sterling, an infectious diseases physician at NYU Langone Health. That shift began with the Delta variant and has remained true of Omicron, says Tim Spector, a genetic epidemiologist who founded the consumer health company Zoe, which runs a COVID-19 symptom tracking app to which more than 4.7 million people have contributed data. Zoe's data suggest that the five most common symptoms associated with Omicron 
are runny nose, headache, fatigue, sneezing, and sore throat. The classic symptoms of fever, cough, and loss of smell were slightly less frequent with Delta than with Alpha, and the cold-like symptoms became more common, Specter says. Omicron has really just increased that rather subtle change, he said. Other research has come to slightly different conclusions. South Africa's largest health insurer listed nasal congestion, sore or scratchy throat, dry cough, and lower back pain as common Omicron symptoms. And a small study from Norway found that among people in one case cluster, a cough was the most common symptom associated with the variant, followed by runny nose and fatigue. Like Zoe, the Norwegian researchers also observed a significant decrease in smell and taste loss. Clearly, symptoms can vary from person to person, so people shouldn't assume they're COVID-free just because they don't have classic symptoms like cough and fever. At least in areas where Omicron is prevalent, Sterling says, the second you get respiratory illness, you have to presume it's Omicron. Are most people experiencing mild symptoms from Omicron? Data from early Omicron hotspots, including South Africa, the UK, and New York City, suggest that the variant causes milder disease than its older cousins. A UK report from late December 2021 found that, compared to people infected by the Delta variant, people with Omicron-related infections were about half as likely to seek care in an emergency department or require hospitalization. But even a mild case of COVID-19 can still make you feel quite sick and potentially lead to lasting complications like long COVID. More research is needed to determine how often this happens. It's also not entirely clear whether Omicron is itself milder than other versions of COVID-19 or whether population-level immunity from vaccinations and previous exposures is mitigating some of its worst outcomes, Sterling says. It's still a good idea to keep up precautions, particularly if you're not fully vaccinated or are otherwise vulnerable. Why do Omicron symptoms differ from those of other variants? Researchers are still trying to answer that question, but the key obviously lies in those multiple genetic changes that we've seen in this variant, compared to old ones, Sterling says. Early data suggest Omicron mostly accumulates in the upper airways, as opposed to penetrating the lungs. This could help explain both its reduced lethality and potentially why it often causes upper respiratory symptoms like runny nose and sore throat. But the variant is still new, and research is ongoing. How can I tell if I'm infected with Omicron or another variant? When you take most standard COVID-19 tests, you'll only get a positive or negative result. If you're infected, it won't tell you which strain is the culprit. You may never know unless health authorities send your sample out for genetic sequencing and share the results with you. Symptoms offer clues, but even two people exposed to the virus at the same time could feel differently. If you're sick enough to need hospitalization, doctors might want to know which strain infected you because certain therapies don't work as well against Omicron as other versions of COVID-19, Sterling says. But if you have a mild case, don't spend too much energy trying to figure out which variant you caught. You'll need to rest and isolate yourself from others until symptoms subside, no matter what.
Up next, here's what you should keep in your car and other ways to prepare for winter driving by Jacqueline Diaz from NPR News. It was the stuff of driver's nightmares. Virginia Senator Tim Kaine called it dystopian. Last week, motorists were stuck in freezing temperatures, some for more than 20 hours along a 50-mile stretch of Interstate 95 in Virginia. Heavy snow fell, causing several vehicles to crash and bringing traffic to a standstill. Kane was one of those unlucky souls stuck for hours. It was pretty grim, he told NPR. It was a cold night. I was stuck on the interstate between two exits where there was big backups, and so I was just surrounded by cars and trucks that were stopped just like I was, he said. Kane's ordeal lasted about 26 hours for a trip that usually takes about two This was a good wake-up call in terms of personal preparedness and being aware of some of the limitations of what the government and first responders can do for us, said Eric Stern, a professor at the University at Albany's College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity. There are ways for drivers to better protect themselves and their families in these types of situations, which can turn deadly for vulnerable people, preparedness experts told NPR. Drivers who can afford to should always carry some type of emergency kit in their vehicles, says David Bennett, a repair systems manager for AAA. Snow or other bad weather isn't always the problem, he noted. It can be a nice day out and a major car pileup snarls traffic for hours, he said. Some key provisions to have in the car include first aid kit, phone charger, flashlight with extra batteries, non-perishable food items like protein bars, a couple of bottles of drinking water, extra pet food, if applicable, a shovel or ice scraper. In the case of the recent storm, freezing temperatures posed another risk for drivers, said University of Albany's Stern. Hypothermia is another concern, he said. Blankets, extra clothes, hats, scarves, and gloves are all good things to keep in the car, especially if going out in harsh conditions, he said. And finally, before hitting the road, make sure your gas tank is topped off, said Stern and Bennett. Staying in the car is usually the safest option. It's hour eight and traffic has yet to move. Hunger has set in. In the distance, a distinct yellow arch can be faintly made out. Getting out of the car and walking to the nearest exit for food won't be so bad, right? Wrong. Leaving a vehicle and potentially the only safe shelter and heat source is not a good idea, experts told NPR. If you were to leave a vehicle, you'd have to have a very good reason. You have to have a good idea where you are, Stern said. You'd have to try to assess, what are my prospects of being rescued if the situation has gone on so long that it's potentially life-threatening? Since a car is the safest place to be in this situation, Stern and Bennett said it's important to always maintain the vehicle so it can hold up in bad weather. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says there are several steps for maintaining a car and prepping it for winter driving conditions. Keep exhaust pipes clear of snow and ice to avoid the risk of carbon monoxide poisoning. It also doesn't recommend running the car for long periods of time with the windows up or in an enclosed space. Travelers should keep an eye on the forecasts for both where they are at the moment and where they are heading. Finally, Stern said, 
never be too proud to turn back if the weather is too treacherous to continue. Stern says some people are stubborn about getting where they are going, but sometimes it's better to turn around rather than to get into a really dangerous situation. He said. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.